Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask for alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do give, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he, and he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wander at us? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? This is God's word. You may be seated. All right. How you guys doing? Good. Good. Well, we are jumping into Acts chapter 3 tonight. So if you have your Bibles, we'll be, for the most part, there. Go ahead and have those open. Um, as we get into this, kind of a reminder, it was a couple of weeks ago now, in the last chapter, Acts chapter 2, Peter stood up. Remember the spirit fell and there's sound of wind and these tongues of fire and these unknown languages, languages that are being spoken. People are hearing the good news of Jesus being proclaimed in their own language. Peter gets up and he explains what's happening. He, he brings clarity to the situation. 3,000 people come to Jesus that day. Then I think what follows after that, sort of the next section where we're going to be in the book of Acts, is, is sort of this section on, on what is the church all about. The church and its mission is like loosely how I'm tying these together as I'm thinking through this next several chapters. The end of chapter 2, Luke gives this description, a list it's kind of just an arbitrary list, it feels like, if you read it, of what this new Jesus community, this messianic community looks like. How did it function? What is the church and what is its mission? And I think, I mean, that's, that's a great question for us, right? As we're thinking through what, it, what does it mean to be a community of disciples following Jesus? What does that mean for us? What does that mean for us as we do life in church and ministry in Santa Rosa? I just want to read, reread this section, the end of Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. It's a list. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, 
to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came over every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. The Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. In our passage tonight, we're going to begin to look at an example of what I think Luke is describing there. I think what we have in our passage tonight, and really the next several passages, several chapters in Acts, is an example, a lived-out demonstration of what happened, what was being described by Luke at the end of chapter 2. This story provides an example of the wonders and signs that were mentioned in verse 43. It takes place, its context is in one of their many visits to the temple, mentioned in verse 46. It happens at the ninth hour, it's 3 p.m., it's the time of prayer, also described as an activity that they participated in. Here in chapter 3, we're told about the church in a different way, though. The end of chapter 2 we're given sort of a general description. These are the general, it's a list of activities that the church does. But here in chapter 3, we get a picture. We get a story. In 2, we're given an analysis, sort of a description. In 3, we see how the church operates. We see that these people who were enabled to do these things were a specific type of people that were described in, in chapter 2. And then we get this story that demonstrates it. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about the book of Acts, and one of the things I'm, I'm so looking forward to as we continue this study, is that the teachings of the Scripture are not confined to just moralistic rules, not just confined to moralism or, or lists of how to do things and not do things or, or just a systematic doctrine. Scripture tells a story. It gives us examples and illustrations, and it puts all of those theories into a lived-out reality. It gives the gospel in action. It's something that is living and real and active and among us. I think there's always the danger that we would view our faith as something that's just abstract and theoretical. And there is definitely, I mean, there's theory, there's, there's doctrine and thought and theology, there's, there's understanding. But we should never forget that there's more than that. Your faith is living. We have a living Messiah. The church is like an organism that's living there's revolutionary power that has been unleashed through the church. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his commentary, his collection of sermons really on the book of Acts, he said this, A dead church is a contradiction in terms. 
It is a dead something, call it what you like, but it is not a dead church. The church is life, it is power, it is vigor. This is, I think, exactly what's illustrated in our story tonight in chapter 3. The church is action. The church is facing and engaging the world. There they are, these, this first group of Christians, these, these disciples that are following Jesus. They've just had this incredible experience, this life-changing experience with God. The Holy Spirit fell on them. They were filled with power. They're rejoicing, they're praying, they're praising God, they're singing. And now, this is what we see in Acts chapter 3, they engage the world. They face the world as it is. This is the business of the church. This is why we're here, to engage the world. The Lord Jesus himself, he came from heaven to seek and save the lost. He came to engage them. And ultimately, he's entrusted that mission to us as his body on the earth today. And so this is an example of what the church is all about. This is a story, a picture of what the church is to be about, what we're to be doing. And we have Peter and we have John going to the temple in the late afternoon, 3 p.m., for prayer. I think often we think of this activity that they attended the temple daily, we think of it strictly as prayer. But it's also important to point out this is their main mission field. They're going to engage the lost in this, this place, this temple. So they're going, and as they're going, there's a beggar. There's this man who's begging for alms. We've all had experiences with somebody begging, right? They don't typically go to secluded places. You don't typically find beggars like hiding away, right? They go to a main thoroughfare. They go to a main walkway, a main street. They want to be at the, the entrance of the mall, or the entrance of the store. Why? Because that's where they're going to get the most traction. They ideally want to be where people are going to feel pressure to do something, to give to them. And that's what we have here. This guy we know was crippled from birth, Luke says, 40 some odd years as marginalized and as living this tough life of a beggar, separated even from his community, he'd been scratching by. The Jewish customs of the day completely barred him from corporate worship. He couldn't go any further into the temple to worship with his brothers. He was not allowed in. But the giving of alms, giving of, of money to the poor, was, was this highly meritorious thing, this thing in the Jewish customs that was very highly looked at. And so it makes perfect sense that he would, his friends would place him on the porch 
on the outside of the beautiful gate, the entrance to the temple. He'd be placed where pious people might be expected to pass by every day regularly, and they would give him alms. They'd give to him. The fact that this man was lame from birth underlines how miraculous this healing that's about to take place, spoiler alert, uh, actually was. Think about this for a minute, though, for me. This, as I read this passage, and I think through the context of the New Testament, he was placed here to beg regularly. This was his spot, right? You guys... We've been familiar with beggars who find their spots. They're there consistently. This was this guy's spot. He was placed there regularly to beg. I have to imagine, the scripture doesn't tell us, so this is just me thinking through the story and the context. I have to imagine, this is the beautiful gate. Scholars describe this gate. Josephus, yeah, he describes this gate as so beautifully overlaid with bronze that it was more beautiful than those who were overlaid with gold. Something was so miraculous or so beautiful about this gate. I have to imagine, this is a main thoroughfare into the temple, Jesus himself likely walked past this guy many times. Jesus did a lot of his ministry elsewhere, but he spent a good amount of time in Jerusalem. He went into the temple often. I don't know, we don't know exactly, but it seems logical to me that Jesus might have even walked past this guy. This guy was barred from corporate worship. He was forced to beg for a living. He probably had seen and heard of these miracles being happened by this, this Messiah figure, Jesus. He possibly even watched Jesus walk right past him. On numerous occasions. And today, something's different. <laughs> on the day that this story is told, something's different. People, I think often, we have the tendency to just wholesale object to the miraculous, to healings, to these sort of examples that we see here. Because, if we're honest, it's kind of haphazard. Why? Why? Today, when many times Jesus walked by, Peter and John walked by other times, what was it? People often ask, like, why doesn't God just heal everyone? If he can, if healing happens, why not just heal everybody? Or, or if there are people who actually pray for healing, why not just go clear out a hospital? If God heals some, why doesn't he heal everyone? You guys familiar with these questions? You wrestled with them like I have? Here's the deal. We don't know. I don't know. You can't know. We don't know why. God does things in his own timing, in his own way, according to his will, his purposes, his plans, for his glory and for our good. Always. This is how he does things. We are not to presume that we know better than he does. 
We're not to presume that we have things thought out better than he does. But when God leads, we follow. When God leads, we follow. So what happens? Let's look at this narrative. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 3. Peter, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. So Peter and John, as they do, like Luke just said, they're going to the temple. And this beggar asks for alms, some change. And what Peter and John do is fascinating. They look at him. I think we've all experienced this. If you are walking and somebody's begging, somebody's asking for change, if you don't have money, what's the first thing you don't do? Let's be honest here. You don't look at them. Don't catch eye contact, right? Is it just me? Am I the only horrible one here? Okay. (laughs) If you don't have cash on you, if you're not feeling, if you're feeling stingy, you don't look at them. You don't ask them to look at you. The last thing you want to do is catch eye contact. But that's not what they do. They look at him, and not just that, they call him out. They call him out. They say, look at us. And he fixes his attention on them. As I think through this story, as I've been praying through this all week, all of this language in this story, it reminds me of different stories throughout the ministry of Jesus. Even around Peter. Think about this. Remember the time Peter walked on water? Remember that? When he took his eyes off Jesus, what happened? He sunk. He went under. Remember that story? It's in Matthew chapter 14. I'll just read part of this. Jesus is coming. He's walking on the water, and they think that he's a ghost. They think that he's a ghost, and they're terrified. This is what it says. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Peter's gutsy. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Verse 30 here. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. I read this story, and I have to think Peter remembered that time when he got his eyes off Jesus, and he began to sink. He's he's trying to get this guy's attention. Look at me. Look at me. Or the time, you guys remember, Jesus healed the man at the pool of Bethesda? You guys remember that story? This is in John 5. I'm going to read it. John 5, starting in verse 1. 
After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the, pool, by the sheep gate, a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps in, steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Or about the other time, Jesus healed a paralyzed man who was brought by his friends. You guys remember the story, the man that's brought in through the roof? Luke chapter 5, Jesus heals this man. I'm going to skip through the story here for the sake of time. When Jesus, uh, where are we here? Yeah, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven to you or to say rise up and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins he said to him who's paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, picking up what he had been lying on, and went home, glorifying God. See the similarities here in 26. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. I could keep going with different stories of Jesus healing people and these miraculous things that happened in the life of Jesus. Even the fact that Peter and John were together, that, that Acts 3 says that Peter and John went together to the temple. This, even this reminds me of the fact that Jesus sent his disciples out two by two. Scholars actually have this debate, like, why is John even mentioned here? He doesn't do anything. It's like an, he's an afterthought thrown into the story. But Jesus sends his disciples two by two. Here's the deal. I think Peter and John are simply doing Jesus stuff. These are disciples of Jesus. They are doing what they had seen and experienced Jesus do his entire ministry. What they had seen their master do on countless occasions, they're doing that sort of stuff. Even more than just a teaching example for Luke, I think this passage tonight is also an example for us, is what this church, what the church is supposed to be doing, this Jesus stuff. Remember at the beginning of the book, when we looked at Luke's opening statement, he said in the first book, 
That would be the Gospel of Luke. O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. The implication is that the rest of this book, Acts, is about what Jesus continued to do and to teach. Only now, through his disciples as the church. Peter and John are doing Jesus stuff, what Jesus did. So here's what happens. Peter says, look at us. Verse 5. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold. But what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. They get his attention. He's expecting, understandably, to receive something from them. He's asked them for alms. He's asking for change. And this is, this is interesting. He's expecting to receive something. But he's not expecting what he's about to receive. I think, if we're honest, many people expect wrong things from the church. Or from you as a Christian. They, they expect things from us. He was expecting a coin, a handout. He was expecting something tangible and simple to meet his immediate felt needs. But he's about to receive something far, far superior. He's about to have his mind blown. People look for many things from the church. They want the church to stay in whatever lane we're supposed to stay in according to how they think that we're supposed to operate. People want good moralistic teaching. They want to be here encouraging talks. They want good family values. Maybe they're looking for certain political persuasion and agreement for their politics. Maybe it's a social justice issue and they want to see action and change. Care for the poor and needy. There's lots of things, and some of those are good. A lot of those are good. This guy's looking for money. He's looking for a handout to pacify, to, to deal with his immediate needs. And the reality is that's all the world has to offer. That's all the world around us has to offer. People are asking for lots of things, and that's all the world has to offer is an immediate scratch your itch. But I love Peter's response here. I have no silver and gold. I love this response for a couple of reasons. First of all, we know from Acts chapter 2, he probably could have gotten silver or gold for the guy. They were selling all their, all their goods and giving to those who had need. But he knows full well that's not ultimately what he needs. He knows what he's looking for, and he sees past it. In other words, it's like Peter saying, don't look to me for that. 
Don't look to me to receive that. That's not what I'm here to provide. That's not what I have to offer you. I have no silver and gold, but what I do, what I do have, I'll give you. He says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Is that word but. But. This is not just a cruel joke being played on this beggar. Look at me. I'm going to give you something. Oh, nope. I don't have any money. That's not what's happening here. Can you imagine the emotions of this guy? Just being kind of toyed with. Someone gets his attention. He's expecting this handout. And they say, oh, we actually don't have any money. But they do have something. They have something. What I do have, I give you. This is like somebody asking for a McDonald's hamburger. And instead, what they receive is like a Wagyu steak. Sorry if you're vegan here. Um, (laughs) There's two completely different, like they're not even on the same playing field. They're not even in the same ballpark, what he's asking for and what he's about to receive. What I do have, I'll give you. I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by his right hand, raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk, entered the temple with them. Remember, he wasn't allowed to entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Now this causes some commotion. Understandably, right? Verse 10, And recognizing him as the one they sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms, They were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. The people recognize him. They had seen him probably day after day as the guy who was crippled and couldn't enter the temple. And now they see him walking, but not just walking, leaping and jumping and praising God. He's in the temple that he was banned from, worshiping. Luke says they're filled with wonder and amazement. I think that's good and fine. That's like a natural response to seeing something mind-blowing, wonder and amazement. But it's not the same thing as repentance and faith. It's not the same thing. Verse 11, while he clung to Peter and John, this guy is not letting him, not letting them go. He clung to them. All the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them at the portico called Solomon's. He clung to them. The people were amazed. Verse 12. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Peter's second sermon in his many chapters. He addresses the people and he says this. He says, men of Israel... Why do you wonder at this? And why do you stare at us? Which is interesting, because he told the guy to stare at him. 
as though by our own power or piety we made him walk. So Peter begins to preach again. He gathers them all together and he asks, why are you looking at us? Why are you wondering at this? Why do you look at us like we did something here? I love this because this miracle becomes an object lesson. This guy's clinging to Peter and John, and he's, he's standing there holding on to them, and I, I can just imagine Peter saying, this guy, look at him. This guy clinging to me. He's completely overjoyed. He's worshiping corporately for the first time in his life probably, and Peter says, this is a signpost. It points to someone else, not to me. Somebody greater, a greater reality, a greater truth. This is all miracles. We're going to see lots of these throughout the book of Acts. Signs and wonders and miracles, healings, things happen. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, miracles are a retelling in small letters of the very same story which is written across the whole world in letters too large for some of us to see. Miracles like this are a retelling in small letters, in tangible ways, of the great miracle, of the incarnation and the resurrection, the grand drama around the cross, of all that Jesus has done and accomplished. This miracle is a small telling of that story. Just like in Jesus' ministry, they should have seen, they should have immediately thought of the prophecies from Isaiah, Isaiah 35, verse 6. And then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And you can keep reading in Isaiah 35. It's beautiful telling of what happens when Messiah comes. Peter continues. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and the righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. He's retelling the story. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Peter says it wasn't us. This was not us. It was Jesus. The same Jesus who you betrayed and handed over to Pilate to be crucified. That Jesus who went to the cross in place of a criminal, God raised him from the dead and vindicated him. He's the great Messiah. It was by his name, by his will, by his authority, in his timing. It all points to him. It all glorifies him. 
Peter goes on, verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. So gracious of Peter. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. I'm going to keep reading this just because it's so good. Peter continued, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel to those who came after him also proclaimed of these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servants, sent him first, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. What a beautiful sermon. <laughs> Peter goes to the Old Testament, to the prophets and to Moses, and he says, it's about Jesus. Look to him. All of this is pointing to Jesus. This is what it's all about, and this is what the church is all about. We are a community of disciples who make disciples of Jesus. What that means is we're a family-like network. We're, we're knitted together. This is what the church is. We're committed to practicing the way of Jesus together, increasingly learning to submit all of our life to his lordship and his leadership, and then to teach others to do the same. We're the people of Jesus, disciples, apprentices, students. We, like Peter and John, we are to do what we see our master doing. And we are always to point to him and his ultimate restoration of all things that is going to be accomplished. A healing or a miracle that doesn't point ultimately to Jesus completely misses the point. Yes, I believe God heals today. Believe that miracles can happen. Believe that he can and does perform them. But the point is ultimately, just like Peter gets to here, it's repentance. It's a changed life, a changed community. It points to Jesus. It points to the restoration of all things because the, the good news is that he's going to make all things new again. That he's going to heal everybody in his kingdom. One day. And we get these small letters these small examples, these pictures of what's to come. 
The point is that there's good news of a coming king and a coming kingdom and the restoration of all things. And here's the reality. The reality is our community is much like this guy, this beggar. They're in need of a real encounter with a real Messiah. A real transformative work that sees past the simple felt needs and transforms the person into a worshiper, leaping and jumping with joy in worship. And just like the beggar, many around us have, many of us even, I think we have experiences of disappointment and frustration. We might find ourselves trapped in cynicism and disbelief. People have expectations of what they thought the church had to offer, of what you had to offer as a Christian. The reality is that we have what they need. We have something greater. This is what Peter preached. The good news. Jesus suffered and died. And I love this language. So that times of refreshing and restoration might come. Jesus has been given the name above all names. He has conquered and is seated right now at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning. He currently has all authority and all power, all dominion, all strength. He's overcome, the scriptures say. And we, as the spirit-filled community of Jesus, as disciples of Jesus that have been equipped and entrusted with the very power of God, as the body of Christ, we get to partner with him to accomplish his will on the earth. That is mind-blowing, that he would choose to do that with us and through us. The good news is that that beggar ultimately becomes the giver. He becomes the signpost. (laughs) He actually stands with Peter and John, (laughs) clinging to them. I love that picture. As a picture, a testimony of the works of Jesus. A changed life. He stands with Peter and John. For the first time, being fully allowed to worship corporately. And he becomes a proclamation of the power and the goodness and the authority and the dominion of Jesus that is far superior to anything else he could have ever hoped for or asked for. The kindness of this Messiah. He is a call to repent. To change the way we think. That's what repentance means. It it means to look to Jesus, who's the author and the finisher of our faith. And that's ultimately, that's our call tonight. As we go through this next section, even in the book of Acts. 
as a community of Jesus followers, in this next season, let's be signposts. Let's point people to the one who has all authority. I think let's ourselves repent. That word repent, it means to change the way you think. To turn around and go a completely different direction. It doesn't mean to just say you're sorry. Change your expectation of the church. Change your expectation of who Jesus is. Of what he can do and what he wants to do in our fellowship and in our midst. He's alive and he's working He has all authority. It doesn't matter how dark or perverse or challenging the world gets around us. It doesn't matter what accusations come, as we're going to see in the next chapter. It doesn't matter because he has all authority and all power. We point to Jesus. We become signposts. We live in a way that says, look at me, but only so you can see him. I'm reminded, Paul said that, follow me as I follow Christ. Look at me, because in my life, I pray that you see such a transformation, such a change, that the only way that's possible is by this Messiah who has all power. Follow me as I follow Christ. And when we do this, when we fully surrender our life to the lordship, the leadership, the direction of the supreme one of Jesus, when we allow him full control, not just like when it's convenient, but full control, I think we'll be amazed at what he does. I think we, we will have our minds blown at what he does in this small community of people if we all begin to do this. We will be signposts, little miracles that point to the supreme miracle of the resurrection. We're living for another kingdom, another king, people of the way of Jesus. My prayer is that we would collectively, we would all pray that we would seek God for clarity and for direction. What are you doing in this fellowship? God, what are you doing? How can we partner with what you're doing? How can we be signposts for the gospel? How can we point people to Jesus? How can we join with you on your mission to redeem and save the earth? How can we join you to bring times of refreshing. Jesus is our example, and he said, even in his life, he only did what he saw the Father doing. Everything he did was directed. God, what are you doing? I love that language, that times of refreshing. 
might come. That your sins may be blotted out. Are you tired? Are you burdened? Are you overwhelmed? Peter says, repent. Change the way you're thinking. Stop doing things the way you've been doing them. Times of refreshing. Do you have expectations of God or of the church that lay unmet and dormant? Hopes and dreams, aspirations, frustrations, that those things that we have longed for and seen unfulfilled, if we're not careful, they turn into cynicism and a hard heart. Repent. Change the way you're thinking. Look to Jesus, the author and the finisher. Turn around and walk a different way. Set your eyes on him that times of refreshing might come. And that you in your life might be a signpost, a lived out parable and demonstration of the gospel. Like that man, the blind or the beggar, crippled beggar. We're living for another king, for another kingdom. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are so kind, so compassionate, so merciful to us. Father, I thank you that times of refreshing are even on the table. God, I pray that you would help us to see what you're doing. You'd give us eyes to see what it is that you're doing, what it is that you're about, how you're moving amongst us, where you're leading and guiding us. God, that in this season, even as we're going through this book, that you would speak clearly to us as a community how it is that we can partner with you, what it is that you're doing in Santa Rosa in Sonoma County, in our lives, in our friendships, in our workplaces. How can we be signposts that point to you? God, we've heard of your fame. We know of all the good things that you've done. I thank you for these lived out stories that it's not dry pragmatic always, but there's a, a tangible story of your goodness and your faithfulness. God, do it again in our day. That we would point people to you. In Jesus' name, amen.